Captain's Log, Stardate Rejected. Starting a new assignment today. Pretty excited, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't also a little nervous. In particular, I'm looking forward to seeing a friend I haven't seen in uh, quite some time. Aaron, it's so great to see you. I'm so stoked about this. Captain Wright, my old friend. Welcome aboard the space station subtext. You must be exhausted from your trip out here to the edge of conceptual space. Shall I show you to your quarters? I think I'm good. I mean, like, I'm tired, but this place is rad, and I'd love a tour if you have the time. At your service, Captain. Shall we begin with the intrigue promenade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, does this place have a good tailor shop? Oh, yeah. And it is queer as hell. It is right over there. this place rules. It's so rad. This is a thing we get to do. Yep, it is pretty cool. Uh, but you haven't actually seen the important stuff yet. Oh? Yeah, yeah, just down this corridor. We're pretty much going to spend most of our time over here. Right on. So this is what I call the Horrors Beyond All Human Comprehension Division. It's your basic Venn diagram of Lovecraftian, Cronenbergian, and Dickian entities. Your office will be just right over here next door. Huh. Okay. And, uh, so what's this thing here? Don't look at that. That thing can only see you if you look at it. It's, you know, like when, when you don't make eye contact with dominant animals, it's like that, but no contact ever, just zero contact. Huh. So I'm going to die here, aren't I? I guess that really depends on how you define die. Coded Dark Universe Edition. <laughs> Season two, Lovecraftian, Cronenbergian, or Dickian Boogaloo. <laughs> oh, I, I had season two, bugging his Boogaloo. I love it. <laughs> season two, Enter the Naked Time. Season two, fully solar punked, ethically sourced pansexual space socialism. <laughs> it's just the culture. We're just the culture now, is what I'm saying. Welcome back to Philosophers in Space. This is very exciting. Uh, for, for my first episode without without the without the I was going to say baggage, but that would be too mean. I think I'm not oh. going to go there. <laughs> no, I love Thomas. Thomas is great. But yeah, I'm the captain now. Look at me. <laughs> uh, I'm glad this is going nowhere near your head. It's great. <laughs> So, yeah, so I'm super, super excited to be the new co-host of the show. I have super enjoyed all of the times that I've been on the show as a guest. And 
without going yeah. into a ton of detail over a long time, like my life has just been a lot lately. Been going through a lot of things, going through a divorce, rearranging my life, all kinds of other stuff. But I guess it makes sense for me to like give a little bit of the bio and background. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So far we've got single captain transferred to station with single uh, dependent, pretty much straightforward character development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. So I have been making podcasts for, gosh, all, almost 10 years, I think. It's been a very long time. <laughs> the The very quick version of the story is I came out as trans got involved in my local queer community and found it to be like super oppressively Christian uh, in a way that I like really, hmm. truly did not expect and was uh, really surprised and and kind of hurt by in some ways because I, I had some like really, really weird conversations with people. And then I started getting involved in the atheist movement and realized that there weren't really a lot of trans voices or let alone queer voices. And it's not that those folks weren't there. It's just that like, you know, the, the, the powers that be weren't giving many of those folks a platform, I think is probably the better way to say it. And so that mm -hmm. led me to start a podcast called The Gatheist Manifesto, which some folks might remember that turned into queer splaining. And I don't know, just the way that my brain works, audio storytelling, audio communication, audio as a medium is just something that like super, super speaks to me. And podcasting is a thing that's just never gotten old for me as long as I, uh, as long as I do it. And I guess the background that brings me here is that I am uh, a lifelong Star Trek nerd. Probably, I'm not going to say too much. So I'm going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do the <laughs> how, guilty. How far back do you go? When, when, when was your first hit? Oh God, probably. I want to say like eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. I know, like childhood memories obviously can be fuzzy, but my memory of it is that. I saw Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time during this like late night marathon where they did like a, a selection of episodes from the first couple of seasons. And then they showed uh, The Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and premiered The Best of Both Worlds Part 2. So there was that, that mm. like legendary summer in the Star Trek fandom where everybody was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to Captain Picard? And there were I guess some, there was like real speculation about whether or not Patrick Stewart was going to actually leave the show. And so mm. even though this was an era where, for the most part, protagonists in shows don't actually die, like they might have bad stuff happen to them, but you can count on them being OK, like by the end of the episode or by the end of the two parter. With, with one really depressing ex exception in that first season. Well, right. right. <laughs> but it, it was definitely not a common thing, but there was like real speculation, I, I, if I'm remembering right, that he might actually be leaving the show. And so he might actually die in that episode. And so there was a bunch of suspense that, uh, again, if my memory is correct, I just like circumvented entirely by not becoming super aware of the show until then. Like, I think I had some cultural awareness mm -hmm. of Star Trek. Like, I feel like it's hard to grow up in our society without at least like hearing about it in some way. Uh, but right. like after that, I was I was hooked for like all kinds of reasons, just like the nerdy tech side, the sci fi stuff super appealed to me. But mm -hmm. as I got older, I started to catch on to some of the bigger messages of the morality and all of that stuff. And that really appealed to me. <laughs> I did sort of almost half expect you to be like, yeah, I, I started with an episode with Dax in it. And I was like, I hope this doesn't awaken anything. in me." <laughs> <laughs> No, the the first like gender type experience that I had with Star Trek was the Next Generation episode, The Outcast. 
which mm-hmm. is a, I mean, it's a, a discourse that's been done to death in the Star Trek fandom, but it like, it really, truly did like speak to me because I didn't have crack that egg uh, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Like I didn't have a super conscious awareness of myself as a queer trans person when I saw it, but like I watched that episode and like for context for folks who haven't seen it, basically the enterprise runs into this society that ostensibly has no gender. Everyone mm-hmm. like there's no biological sex as we understand it. There's no gender identity as we understand it. And not only that, but you dig, dig a little further. And in this society that's considered like a backwards thing and they end up getting put through this like horrible sounding mm-hmm. 24th century equivalent of uh, conversion therapy if, if you're found to be a person of the genders. Uh, and of course, <laughs> one yeah, of the cis. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, uh, one of our, one of our alien friends ends up becoming one of those people and Riker has to like fight for her and that kind of stuff. And my sense of it is a kid. Riker would fight for gender for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, he was fighting, he was fighting for her. He was ready to, he was ready to throw mm-hmm. down. Um, We'll have to do that and, episode. That'd be a good one for us, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it, it's, a, it's a really funny example because it was really meant to be like a gay allegory and it stumbled very awkwardly into being a decent trans allegory. Uh, not perfect. Like you but, do. Yeah, as one does. Um, but I think when I saw it, it was more like, okay, I have this vague sense of a way that I'm different and I see how this person is different. And I feel like there's just like something familiar in that. And Mm -hmm. of course this is around the time in your life where you start to like really recognize that there are lots of ways that uh, society at large punishes you if you're like too different. And Mm -hmm. it was really, really comforting to me to be able to imagine a world where that was like, okay. So like all of the people that I look up to on the enterprise, they're like, uh, Riker, especially, he's ready to just like risk everything because he wants to defend this person who's being hurt because she is different from the rest of the people in her society. And Which I think that great, was, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's something that like really cemented Star Trek for me as like my place. And mm. I was a very lonely Star Trek fan for a very long time. I didn't have. Uh, the, basically the closest thing that I was, uh, the closest thing that I had sad face was uh, a close friend who was really into star Wars. And, mm. um, yeah, that just, <laughs> that's like the, the, like the ultimate consolation prize for a Trek fan, I feel like, and vice right. versa. Right. You're just like, yeah. it's just, it's like an uncanny Valley almost, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And we used to argue all the time. And even then as a kid, I knew I was like, I was like, okay, like Star Trek is my main thing, but like Star Wars is cool. And I think it's cool that people like Star Wars, but I would still have those like fun Mm. fandom arguments that you can have where it's like, like, no, like I don't really think less of you because you like Star Wars, but it's fun to mess with each other. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and the example there, I feel like really is a great tease for what we're talking about today, which is kind of the core, one of the core ethoses of Star Trek, which is this humanist ideal um, and I think what you were tapping into there was that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's why I love Lower Decks so much. Yeah. So, um, oh, 
before we before we pivot though, right? I know yeah. we're gonna we're, we're segueing here, but we should you know we're we're yeah welcoming you to the show, which is great. I'm mm-hmm. super excited about that, and along with that, we are making various tweaks to the show. Mm-hmm. We have altered the artwork, updated it, got a nice lower deck uh, vibe thanks to our wonderful um, local bot Ross um, Neil Haran, who did a great job on those. So good, um, definitely check those so out. Good. You went, you got full trilled. It looks so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have got, got full we, uh, horror, horror, uh, do- dog body horror, yep. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Him and him and Volt now are our yep. little Cronenberg baby together, um, which is great. We will all, we will love them like they are our own. Uh, and then we're also going to updo, update some of the Patreon stuff. So we are going to revamp what's going on with Patreon. Um, we're going to have some new patron goals and like, you know, our our sense generally is that like people support the show because they want to support the show, not because they want new things. Um, so, you know, to some extent, a lot of this is going to be trying to implement stuff that we've been wanting to do for a while just because we want to do it. Um, and with you here, I think this is going to be really great. Um, so we're looking at things like video, right? Getting some stuff yeah. up on YouTube. Um, and if you're cool enough to maybe... be in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group or on social media, by now you probably know that we're trying video because we're actually recording video now. Um, right. And a little bit very, of... Yeah. Very excited yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that'll be fun. I have to get used to, of course, being on video because... Um, I'm used to just hiding in my little cave. Um, right, so right. Get that sorted. Um, but other than that, we're also looking at trying to do a little bit of merch maybe at some point. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Maybe hanging out at some conventions and maybe doing a live show or something like that, perhaps. Uh, but also, we want to do a survey because we want to find out. I wanna, we want to learn a little bit about y'all, for starters, and like who's listening to the show and what you're into at this point and what would interest you to have a little bit of more of. So all those kinds of things. Um, um, look for that coming in the future, and yeah, I'm super stoked. I think we're gonna we're gonna have lots of fun as the intro sket uh, I think conveys. Hopefully, yeah. And so check the show notes of the episode to get a link to that survey. Uh, and I'll just say like, what a lot of people uh, who make podcasts will put out a survey and be like, we just want to learn about you. And like, what it really is, <laughs> let's be truthful, is because they want all of the demographic info to send to advertisers. If that was the right. plan, we would be honest about it. That's really not the thing. Uh, we really no. just like, we want to learn about like who listens to the show, uh, what you're into, what you like, different things that you might want to see, uh, even topics that uh, we might want to talk about or cover. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have things planned pretty far out, but obviously plans can change. And so it's just a genuine want to like get to know folks and get some feedback on what you all think might be cool. So we don't, so like, We're going to be tweaking around formats and stuff like that. So we want to make sure that we're not like changing stuff that people like and Mm -hmm. that we're adding stuff that just like makes the experience better. Right. So. uh, So, yeah, check the show notes for the link to that survey and it will actually help us out in uh, making the show better. So very stoked on that. Thank you, friends. Yeah. And so now, speaking of the exposition zone and a little bit of lower decks, as our new captain, uh, you are, I believe, in the process of going to workshop some new uh, engage phrases. Yeah, yeah. 
you this know, is when a, you are ready, you can sort of try out your first one if you like here. Yeah. So th- this is a, a thing that captains uh, kind of have to do. This is a thing. And, uh, you know, Captain Picard says engage. And, uh, you know, we have uh, let's fly Michael Burnham's. Right. And so I just thought, like, if we're going to do this, I have to have a phrase of my own uh, because a bop it is, is was great. Like, Full props to Thomas Classic. for that. Yeah, it's great, but it's his thing, right? And so I need my mm-hmm. thing. And so I, I've been really thinking about this, and it might take a couple episodes to get one to stick with, but sure. uh, so I'm just going to throw it out here. All right, you ready for it? Mm-hmm. You might call this even a uh, Cali rite of passage. Oh my God. <laughs> Yes. Something about you yeah. brings the puns out of me. It's really terrible. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I cannot express to you how fully I support that. Uh, so, all right, here we go. Plot me. You're traveling through another dimension beyond that which is known to podcasters. It is the middle ground between fair use and copyright infringement. Between ordinary fanboying and meaningful analysis. It is the exposition zone. <laughs> I love the commitment. I really. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you got to say it with conviction, it. right? Like, if you're gonna be, yeah. uh, if you're gonna be a captain and you're gonna like inspire your crew to commit horrible atrocities in your name, like you got to make the order exactly. with commitment, right? That's how this goes. Yeah. No, I <laughs> I, I felt the desire to plot you. I really did. <laughs> I was with you on that. Wonderful. Mission accomplished. So (laughs) this week we are going over the episode Strange Energies, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. It's the second season opener. And there's just lots of really cool stuff in this. And I'll say at the very top, one of my big like Star Trek hills to die on is that I think Lower Decks is actually much better Star Trek than even a lot of people who like it give it credit for. I've seen a Mm -hmm. lot of discourse from people who are like, oh, Lower Decks is great, but of course that's not canon. Lower Decks is great. I love it on its own, but it's not like real Star Trek. And Mm -hmm. that makes me so mad because... I get it, right? Because it's the funny one. It doesn't take itself too, too seriously. It's very tropey. It's very self-aware, very obviously made by a Star Trek fan. Like Mike McMahon is a Star Trek fan from way, way back. He obviously gets Star Trek, but there is a lot that happens in Lower Decks that I don't think enough people recognize. Of course, I I don't want to do the, and no one's talking about it because people, some people do get it, but at least in the cool people. Yeah. (laughs) Like in my corner of, you know, Trek Twitter, at least, I guess I should be specific. That's where I'm talking about mostly. Yeah. No, get get as (laughs) as thoroughly online and elitist about this as you can. Really climb up into that, that, you know, uh, ivory tower on this. Yeah. And this is the only time that I'll do that. It's very important for me uh, to maintain humility about the things that I need to maintain humility about, but Star Trek is just simply not one. Uh, if you disagree, before you with start me, spouting right. off yeah. and Klingon or something, right? <laughs> Good job. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I will say I even ran into this a little bit uh, a couple of times in talking with a bunch of different people at conventions. Uh, mm-hmm. Just that that it's that Lower Decks is it's a novelty Star Trek. It's a novelty show. It's not something to take seriously, even if you like it. But 
this episode in particular, I mean, there's a lot that I could point to across the series, but we'd be here for days. And so we kind of right. had to pick one. And uh, Strange Energies, I think, is a great mashup of a bunch of things that make Star Trek great. And so I was thinking yeah. what we should uh-huh. do is, uh, is, is our, uh, our transporter pitch for the episode. Yes, yes. Um, our transport, and, and I, I just want to add, I, I totally agree with you one hundred percent. And I feel like if this is not canon, then that's a problem. Like this should mm-hmm. absolutely be canon one hundred percent. So yeah, we, you know, in the process of um, re, you know, revamping the show, we are going to tighten up the exposition zone a little bit because it's just gotten a little loosey goosey. Uh, and to do that, we've got a couple of things we're going to introduce here. The first of which is going to be transporter pitch. So the idea here is I would like you to explain this content to me in the time it would take to murder me down to the molecular level so that the perfect copy of me that takes over will understand the rest of the episode and we'll be good to go. Perfect. That's great. Uh, and and I'll just I'll just come right out come right out and say it this uh, mm-hmm. this muscle of the transporter pitch is one that I'm developing uh, just like okay. ju- just like my uh, my captain phrase and so mm-hmm. these may get better over time but uh, what I have is campiness and trek tropes combined together into a deceptively simple or a deceptively funny and emotionally mature episode of Star Trek that is better than almost anyone wants to give it credit for. Solid. It's pretty solid. It's a very long run on sentence, which I guess didn't mention God once, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> well, I feel like that that comes under the the uh, the framework of of Trek tropes. <laughs> uh yes, you're, you're right. You're right. God is certainly a Trek trope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites, in fact. Specifically, yeah. uh, humans or human-like aliens being given, uh, being uh, unexpectedly given godlike powers. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, instead of doing the like, uh, we're going to talk you through the episode of the thing that you hopefully just watched, um, we're going to instead, and that, you know, like, have to introduce the 10 million amazing characters that we love in the show. Right. Um, we're going to add something else new to the exposition zone. Again, workshopping this here, but we're roughly calling this There Are Four Highlights, I think. <laughs> And the idea is going to be each of us will provide our two highlights from the episode and thereby provide some of the plot without uh, dragging that along too much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Callie, do you want to start off with your first highlight? Absolutely. And it actually comes back to uh, this idea of the way that Star Trek treats the idea of God or godliness or what happens mm-hmm. when humans or you know, people who are sentient in the way that we are sentient, uh, <laughs> humanoid like aliens. I don't want to be too like human centric. I love how uh, you're already like in the, like, Oh, I'm going to philosophers got a caveat, more caveats. Well, yeah. <laughs> Entities with things like us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a thing that is often treated as a given about Star Trek is that we have reason for near boundless optimism about the future. And we often kind of skip past the idea that it took World War III and hundreds of millions of people dying in a nuclear holocaust to get there. That's a different conversation. Except but, for the time travel episodes, but yeah, well, mostly. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think this 
thing. So in the episode, Jack Ransom gets hit by a, a burst of strange energies and starts to develop godlike powers, which is kind of a callback to the TOS episode where no man has gone before. And he immediately starts like abusing those powers the same way that Gary Mitchell did in the TOS episode. Uh, there's also a TNG episode where uh, Q attempts to recruit Riker into the Q continuum. And he mm -hmm. very immediately starts giving in to like the temptations of this unlimited power. Uh, and of course he comes around and makes the right decision or makes the decision that he makes uh, for morality reasons, right? Like he's not ultimately right. given over to that level of power but it, we very often in Trek will see these uh, this dynamic play out where humans get what we would think of as godlike powers and immediately start abusing those powers for their own benefit instead of using them for the benefit of everyone. And I think that is a really interesting way that Star Trek maybe doesn't have quite as optimistic v uh, a view of the future. And I don't know how deliberate that is. Like, I don't know if that was something that mm. they were definitely thinking about in the writer's room for like where no man has gone before, for example. But it seems that like, even though we see this, we see this entire society ostensibly built around, like we all work for the greater good mm -hmm. when someone is given the power to operate outside that such that they don't need the support of that society anymore. Like they immediately, they immediately are like, Nope, never mind. I'm just going to do whatever I want and take all the power and whatever wealth there is to myself. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And I think it is kind of, uh, you know, there's a there's a couple of different philosophies that I would tie it to, like the kind of Hobbesian view of human nature, where we're like, you know, animals that have to be chained by society. It's a very kind of liberal idea about democracy and like diffusion of power and checks and balances. I think, um, yeah. it, it, you know, I think it ties into these ideas that we are civilized by society, and otherwise we would be, you know, pure id, which. You know, I'm not an anthropologist by any stretch of the imagination, but I just think mm -hmm. back to the idea that like what we think of as human nature is often actually referring to the nature of the specific cultural context that we grow up in. And I don't even right. necessarily mean like, you know, the Midwestern United States or the United States. I mean, the, the sort of like fundamentally like capitalist worldview mm -hmm. of you know, we have to lock up all of the resources and make people work to access them. And that's how we build an economy versus the more like collective type societies that like in the, right. the long scheme of human history, like that's not actually how humans have naturally arranged their social relationships. And I think it, it it's a, it's a propaganda victory. I think that culturally we seem to just like ignore that like vast amount of human history because we've been taught mm -hmm. that you know the way that we are brought up the way that we organize society is like not only the correct way but sort of like the inevitable fundamental end point of human society like it's a product of human right. nature instead of one specific cultural idea that was able to amass enough power to just uh stamp everything mm -hmm. else out 
Yeah, and that's a very like 80s, 90s, 2000s liberal kind of right. mindset about sort of the end of history. And it also, you know, you were talking about human nature. This is, I think, a really, really important, very big topic that it's actually lurks in the background of a lot of our political debates around things like criminal justice um, and and to address the problem of like cultural influence, which you often see are people trying to argue from, you know, evolutionary psychology or from some appeal to ancient history or, you know, prehistory or things like that. Um, and it gets very messy in those. Um, but I recently just listened to two books on this actually, uh, that I'll recommend the dawn of everything and humankind, both of which are like these kind of very broad sweeping books where I can't necessarily attest to like how much they're cherry picking or accuracy, but at least certainly make the argument that you're talking about, which is, you know, we have been lied to about humankind and human nature to sell us on a certain kind of social structure that we don't actually need. Yeah. And it's and it's an interesting thing, specifically knowing that Gene Roddenberry was a pretty a pretty I don't want to say devout avowed communist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in theory, he wouldn't look at the world that way. And thus, we look at Stalin that way, maybe after you know <laughs> being disillusioned. Yeah, you know, like by seeing the way that like despotism kind of right. undermined the communist goal. Like you could imagine it, like a significant fear of strongman kind of yeah. mindset there. Yeah. Well, and you know the other possible explanation, and I don't have any you know like behind the scenes knowledge of this, but the other possible explanation I could think of is that whatever amount of that he would want to inject, he had to sort of tamp down to get it past the suits. Uh, because sure. that's the explanation for a lot of Star Trek shortcomings is you hear that there were at least a certain number of people behind the scenes who really wanted to take it to the level we all sort of wish they would. But it was mm -hmm. like, this will literally not make it to air if we do that. And so this was the compromise we made, which, you know, I, I have complicated feelings about that, too. But like that's sure. that's the conversation. And that's the reason that is often given. Yeah, as opposed to Voyager, where they just compromised from the get-go because the creators were... Anyway, separate <laughs> conversation. Uh, moving right along. Uh, another highlight, perhaps, speaking of uh, Voyager, I want, uh, one of my... My first highlight is actually just fan-serving towards the dock, right? Like, I think there's a long, wonderful, rich tradition of doctors in the Trekverse, and yet the dock in Lower Decks is just the best, right? Like, is, combines ugh. all of the weird sex of Beverly Crusher with all of the, like, snark of Baldo. You know, it just, like, it's perfect. It's it's a perfect, surly Doctor character. And in this episode, they have so many incredibly funny throwaway lines. A lot of them references to the original series episode, which you actually told me to watch, and I did, and it's awful. It's really, the original series is very, very, very actually bad. It's not a joke bad. It's objectively bad. Um, but this episode, yeah, there was a lot of fun stuff that I hadn't caught before that were just like great bits about that, including the end of this episode. Um, but the, the part I love is the like, the level of not giving an F that like the doc has with regard to strange energies. I think one of my favorite lines um, in the episode actually was, uh, let's see, she, yeah. So they're talking about the strange energies and he's like, it turns people into godlike powers. And the captain says, humanity has a, a complicated relationship with organized religion. And the doc's like, well, strange energies doesn't. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I love it. So and it, Well, and right before that, you know, she's scanning with a medical tricorder. Oh, I took a load of strange energy straight to the cortex. Straight <laughs> to the cortex. <laughs> and that's just such a great callback to just Star Trek Technobabble in general. Mm-hmm. Like, because it's... I I'm very tired of the phrase saying the quiet part out loud, but if there's ever a a, Mm -hmm. a point where it like really applies, I feel like it's that because she might as well have said like, Oh, he took a techno babble to the techno babble, (laughs) but like the medical version of it. Right. And in the original version, it's like, uh, there's a, um, uh, what do you call it? a probe, right? It's always like right. a probe with some like stuff on it. And yep. like the, the probe sprays you with this stuff and that's whatever happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fine. And, and she like, in, in through like when shit goes South, she's got like a, what she's got like a tricorder in her hand and it gets turned into an ice cream cone. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, you know, the captain's like, what's going on? And to Anna's like, ah, oh, he appears to be working on his buys and tries <laughs> just very right, dry right. delivery, which is just, I mean, it's, brilliant acting and directing to to be able to just like deadpan that so well i just mm. mwah, i love to Anna so much she's so much of what i aspire to be and uh, a, a rare uh, non mostly non-humanoid alien in star trek mm-hmm. which is a great uh, a great asset of animated star trek for sure yep absolutely all right what's your next one so i was thinking a lot about Basically, every other story in this episode, uh, you know, Trek often has an A plot and a B plot, sometimes a C plot. And it's usually very C minus. Right, right. And one of the things that I respect so much about Lower Decks on like a just like a technical TV show making level is Mm -hmm. they very often pull off several story threads that feel very much addressed by the end of the episode somehow in like 25 minutes. And so you have Mm -hmm. the storyline of them dealing with Jack Ransom turning into this God figure and like trying to distort, destroy the Cerritos and trying to figure out how to stop him and all of that. But all of the other subplots have to do with these characters relationships to each other. And Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why I have such a soapbox about Lower Decks being uh, a a very real manifestation of Star Trek's kind of highest aspiration in some ways, because at the beginning of the show, basically, you have characters who are like sort of acting out these pretenses. So you have Mariner, Mm -hmm. who is trying to pretend to be like best buds with her mom. And you have Tendi, who is trying to like science her way into figuring out whatever's wrong with Rutherford instead of just talking to him about her feelings. And Mm -hmm. it plays out in these really ridiculous and funny ways. But at the core, what you have are characters who are dealing with trauma or anxiety about something. And the problems all come from the fact that they can't just like sit down and talk to each other in a very honest way. And what ends up solving those problems in all cases is them finally deciding to come clean and just be honest and have a real conversation about the way that they're feeling about things. And so for Tendi, it's she's worried about losing Rutherford as her friend. Like she just is so terrified of losing Rutherford mm-hmm. as a friend that she's going to all of these ridiculous lengths trying to shoot him with medical venom, trying to extract his brain, that kind of stuff, because 
you know, because he likes pears and because he right. is like going out on a second date with this girl that didn't work out the first time for very dorky reasons. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of season one, Mariner and Freeman are both like it like it feels kind of like a wholesome moment when they get to the end. But at the beginning, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is miserable. Actually, this is terrible because like this dynamic is not who we are. Like we're we're just putting on an act of a different kind to try to get along and nothing's going to work until we drop that. And uh, mm-hmm. in, in particular, you see the, the this very funny scene of, of Mariner and Freeman uh, basically doing like a therapy session while they're like running from Jack Ransom and trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> when yes, you say that, yes, the what processing I hear language. is that you don't like being disagreed with, which is very God, funny. Like Jack Ransom is like, y'all hate each other. Right. Stop it. It's annoying. Right. Right. And it's you know the first time i watched it i was like oh my god they're doing therapy that's brilliant and i laughed and it was very funny but I, i've seen the episode probably half a dozen times or more since then and in mm-hmm. like when the funny wears off like it still makes me smile a little bit but i think about it and it's like this is the presentation is very comical and not exactly serious but you really do have like characters with a history who are trying to work out their differences and their, and their like anxieties and traumas with each other. And it like, it's actually like really touching. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I feel the same way about Tendi and Rutherford. Uh, you know, specifically I have, I have friends who read Tendi very much as, uh, as asexual and I'll say I do too. I'm not ace. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have like authority to like make that call, but that's just the way that she reads to me. And so it's also interesting that, her fear is not about having a relation, uh, a romantic relationship with Rutherford is like, she is that desperate to hold on to their friendship because their friendship means so much to her. And it's not about sex and it's not about romance. It's just about friendship. And I just, I Mm -hmm. think that's so cool and such a, such a deep, like it, it, again, so much deeper than a lot of people want to give it credit for. Yeah, there's some really tight metaphors in here. I like the at the beginning, speaking of like torture and truth, you <laughs> see uh, like the main character is like, in order to talk about how frustrated she is with her mother, she has to do like a, a simulation where she's being tortured, like a Four Lights reference, yep. no less. Yep, yep. Um, where she's I being get tortured. Out of here. They keep and then, showing me lights. <laughs> boy, boy. Um, and, and, and she does a whole escape thing while she's like trying to process through her feelings. I just love the idea of like, you have to literally be tortured to be willing to like express your feelings as a metaphor for how, how locked up people can get. I also want to give a little pushback here I, I do love the like this is about talking through things and that's very humanist but I also love a little bit about the way that this episode inverts that trope because the solution here is actually not to talk about it it's to kick somebody in the nuts oh yeah well like, I mean violence I mean, is the, the solution I mean the subplots for sure right right, right. violence is right. definitely the solution for the for the well, main but, story know, <laughs> this is a great show where they tie all the plots together yeah. and it's like the main show they try the talking approach or they try the positive right reinforcement well yeah and it doesn't Captain work. Freeman goes out her way like you're so handsome and you're good at guitar and uh and mm-hmm. he you know he like he starts to feel feelings a little bit uh and so it's I mean it's the classic thing where it's like I'm gonna try a solution and it's gonna look like it's working for just a quick second before it all turns right. turns around again yep it's great it's good stuff um 
All right. So last highlight, I guess, then I have down and it's related to the one you're talking about with Tendi and Rutherford. So Rutherford is this um, Androidish or not Android, I guess cyborg. Um, a cyborg, a cyborg. cyborg character, right? Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. Uh, get, the, get the percentage of, of man to machine. Correct. Right, there. Exactly. Um, right. So he is a cyborg and he's having potentially cyborg issues. Tendi thinks, but it's a really great piece about like true self quote unquote right we have this idea that like there's a true self and then there's someone when they're not acting they're acting out of character in some way and so tendy keeps claiming that rutherford's acting out of character and the evidence that she keeps giving is you know things that he's changed about himself but like we all change over time so it's like how do you you know it's kind of a ship of theseus almost a little bit where Mm -hmm. you're like what is the true thing that is sticking around now she ends up being right um but i also think it's a really interesting sort of ethical question the part especially where she's literally torturing him with shocks um and there's a great hilarious bit where she he's like could you at least warn me and she's like no it won't work if i warn you it has to be random um and you know that little shtick in the span of maybe 10 seconds they reference like the milgram experiments they reference skinner's behaviorism and they reference the void Kampf test from um blade runner as well so it's just like a bunch of really interesting references to, you know, psychological research about humanity, about like um, what makes someone who they truly are and their values and all those kinds of things. And it's just like the, the like references per second, you know, I'm someone who loves my memes as dense as I can get them. And I just feel (laughs) like some of the scenes in like, in, in lower decks are just like neutrino stars of just references on top mm-hmm. of each other. Well, and, and what I appreciate as a fan so much is that uh, I, I will admit that I am a sucker for fan service, but I, sure. I do like roll my eyes a little bit when it feels like that's all that's happening. And I feel like lower decks has mastered the art of fan service that still makes sense in service mm-hmm. of the plot and like the broader arc and in giving you insights into like who these characters are as people. And I mean, I think the, the subtext at play here is that, uh, is that Rutherford has lost basically all of his memories, uh, after the last episode of season one. And so this is, you know, episode one of season two. And so, you know, they don't make it super clear if Rutherford's just lost like everything about like who he is and his Mm -hmm. past, but he definitely forgets about Tendi and their friendship, uh, which is just the super wholesome moment of uh, the end of season one, where it looks like it's going to be a really sad moment. And Tendi's like, Oh my God, that means we get to become best friends all over again. Um, Right. Which, which is assuming that he mm -hmm. is in fact the same person, even though he doesn't have all of his memories. Um, yeah, and then it is an interesting situation where the idea seems to be that like a personality persists, and you can have certain like personality character trait dispositions and things like that, even if those memories go away. Which you know you have people with amnesia, and that sometimes mm-hmm. is the case. Um, so yeah, it's it's good stuff. Well, and, and if I, I mean I can I can speak to this as a person who has uh, who has anxiety that gets pretty severe sometimes. You know, she's like latching on to these things that like you could argue are meaningful. You could also argue that they're superficial because, you know, he, he goes on a date with Barnes again, even though their date the first time around didn't work out. And she's like, Oh, so that that's, that's weird. And then he likes Mm -hmm. pears before he hated pears. Now he likes pears. That's weird. And 
one of the things about my anxiety specifically is that I pay very close attention to people's behavior, like the way that they talk, the way that they act. And when I start to see people acting substantially differently, like that's a I don't know if I call it a, a red flag, but it's kind of a yellow flag for me. Like, hmm, something's up here. And mm -hmm. I don't think I would ever uh, torture anyone, <laughs> let alone a friend in, in service <laughs> of addressing that. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I am the kind of person who would see something like that and at least be a little bit freaked out by it. And so in the context of this being like a cartoon with some obviously like right. fantastical and exaggerated funny elements, like I actually can identify with that. Like, like, Oh, this, mm -hmm. this person's changing. Maybe they're not my friend anymore. And I'm like worried about what that means. And I mean, that's a journey that like I went on when I came out as trans because there were uh, a couple of yeah. friends of mine who in, in all good faith with not with, with nothing malicious in their hearts were like, I do, like I don't know what this means for who you are as a person and if the person that I know as my friend is going to change such that like our friendship feels different. And mm -hmm. it was never uh like the trans community obviously like we tend to like roll our eyes at the the notion that like our transition is a hardship on the people around us. Um I I tend to be slightly more sympathetic than average for that. But I think that is largely colored by the fact that the people in my life who express who express those concerns, like very much went out of their way to explain this is not a you problem. I don't want you to think that like I don't want you to be I don't want you to be trans. I don't want you to be transitioning or anything like that. I just want to be mm -hmm. honest about my worries about like what this might mean for our friendship. If, if things change, if you, uh, if, if, if all of these things about you are changing, is it going to change some dynamic about our relationship? And I mean, at the time, my answer was like, I don't actually know. Cause like I hadn't met very many, uh, trans people and, and gotten to know sure. them enough to know, like, am I going to take hormones and like fundamentally change my personality? Is that even a thing? Which seems mm -hmm. like a silly thing now, but like at the beginning when I barely know anyone, like maybe, I don't know. And so that's right. just it, like, it, it hits home in those ways for me. Yeah. I also think there's a very dark, like, allegory here to conversion therapy as well in mm, terms yeah. of you know individuals who are raised in religious situations who like genuinely believe that their true self is straight and mm -hmm. that this is some sort of demon or curse or something like that who are essentially getting shock treatment like tendies you know providing in this kind of way to try to like stay the person that they think they really are so that they can be in communion with their community and people who are like supporting them and doing that genuinely are like tendies right they think that they are helping them in this kind of way yeah well that's what that's what my grandma said to me well, one of the things my grandma said to me is uh i you know i i I'd had the coming out talk with her and answered a few questions and i i think she was extremely shocked and wasn't able to like fully articulate like what her thoughts, what her questions or concerns were. And so, you know, given that she is a super hardcore Pentecostal, I felt like the conversation went as well as it possibly could have been, which is to say mm -hmm. that it was really not great, but she didn't out and out say like, I'm disowning you as my grandkid. <laughs> like, right, uh, right. That was, that was the bar for success 
for that conversation for me. But like when I was cooking dinner later that night after I'd gotten home, she called me and I didn't answer like because I was legitimately cooking. Like I was planning on calling her back when I got done eating, but she left me a voicemail and she was like, well, I just think you have this demon in you that's making you feel this way. And I just wonder Mm. if you would come to church with me and talk to my pastor because I think he could help you. And I was just like, I don't even know how to respond to that. And I actually think, (laughs) I don't remember if it was, it was maybe it was like less than a year after that that I stopped talking to her. <laughs> right. Ugh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I I think that like it is challenging. We all change and there's like these complexities to these relationships and like that's part of what this episode is about too, right? Mm-hmm. That like there are people grow and change and their relationships have to grow and change um with them. And sometimes uh, your head realize... grows and change and you yeah, try to right. eat so the ship that you're giant on. head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is um, it, uh, there's a giant head approaching the ship. I love the the deadpan of that. It's so perfect. <laughs> what and, um, and the the juxtaposition of this emotional conversation between Tendi and Rutherford with the battle going right. on in the background, and you see like Jack Ransom's head trying to bite the nacelle, chewing on it. The like <laughs> like noises and stuff. Uh, yeah. But is it uh, is is it time to is it time to philosophize? I suppose it is philosophizing time. Shall we? We shall. All right. Well, let's I guess go ahead and grok it. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. This is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. So uh, we're going to talk about humanism. And the way I want to talk about this is actually I I posed a question to you to ponder, which is actually a question about a question, which is very philosophy. I wanted you to ponder on all of the things that you've seen in Trek. What do you feel like is the most important, like, actual question that a person asks anywhere in Star Trek at any point in time? Like a literal quote. Uh, well, and, you know, I, I, I will admit to saying that I didn't come up with a literal quote. Mm-hmm. But there is a question that in one way or another gets posed several times throughout Star Trek that I feel like is kind of at the most fundamental core of what Star Trek is. And that is simply the question of what is a person? Like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be conscious? And how do you decide uh, when that threshold is crossed? Mm. And that's just, that's Mm -hmm. at the core of so many great Star Trek stories in, in, in small ways and big ways. Obviously there's uh, measure of a man, TNG, which is uh, probably the most uh, like well-known and most often referred to uh, piece of that question. But mm-hmm. I mean, we have uh, in, in best of both worlds when they're talking about, or not in best of both worlds, but uh, in um, I Borg, when they're talking about using Hugh to destroy the Borg collective, uh, you know, there's the, this question of like, we need to be clear that you are creating a weapon of mass destruction with which to commit genocide. And, we are trying to invent a context in which that's okay. And like, I don't know that the episode goes deep enough into asking that question that it's like fully nuanced and laid out in a way that I feel like does really well with it. But that is Mm -hmm. kind of at the core of the, the conflict in that episode. Mm. Um, There's also in Voyager with species eight, four, seven, two, uh, you know, there's the, this, uh-huh. and, and especially when they get, I hate the the notion that like a villain can get defanged because I think 
especially in Star Trek, the idea is for these things to become big moral questions. And so taking a big bad that's just like this monolithic evil and making it more recognizable, I think is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so, you know, Species 8472, Mm -hmm. they're like undercover posing as humans because they're trying to figure us out because they don't like they don't see us as people the way that they're people, just like we don't them. And that's the journey is coming together on that. Um, I mean, I I could rattle off reference after reference after reference, but it's a a very, yeah, go ahead. But I I just, I think that's at the core of like all of the best Star Trek. Yeah. It's a very meaningful, thoughtful, deeply well-cited and unfortunately objectively incorrect answer. I was hoping that you would be able to get this correct since you're an expert on the subject. Uh, So sorry. That's okay. I can help you out. Yeah. Help me out here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the obviously objectively correct answer and, you know, unfortunately is asked by objectively the worst captain in all of Star Trek history is simply the question, what does God, what need, does God need with a starship? I knew yeah. you were like it's, go just, there. it's just literally the most important question that any human being could ever ask anyone. What does God need with a starship? Yeah. Uh, you know, simple fair. As it gets. Fair. I, I will, I will, I will all concede. The, you know, I will concede no. on that one. Um, it, it came to mind because we wanted to talk about humanism, mm-hmm. which is an interesting um, subject because both of us, I think, you know, have spent a lot of time in humanist circles, communities and things, even though I personally have back and forth feelings about the word humanist itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as we were discussing Trek and this episode in particular, it sort of dawned on me that we haven't done an episode on humanism and that like Trek is humanism porn in like the biggest way possible. Um, And so I wanted to talk about that. And then it occurred to me that like the essence of Trek humanism, right, is the question, what does God need with a starship? Which is to say, (laughs) using critical thinking, right, to challenge authority uh, in a reasonable kind of way, whatever the consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and not, you know, go about promoting massive injustice, which is what happens if you let God have the starship, I think. Yeah, um, that's so, fair. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it, it, it's also reminiscent. Uh, I, I think it's a, a little bit less on the nose, but it's it, kind of reminiscent to me of uh, who watches the watchers in TNG, where they end up uh, inadvertently exposing themselves to, uh, what we would consider a primitive culture, uh, proto, mm-hmm. proto-Vulcan humanoids is the the word that they use. And, <laughs> you know, the scientist mm-hmm. who was observing them and obviously like has a vested interest in like getting his colleagues back off of the planet as like, like, yeah, just lean into them thinking you're a god so we can get our people back. And Picard's like, no, like that's not, we're not going to do that. And that's you know, I, I love that scene. I don't love how that scene is often uh, deployed out of context to be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't be a Star Trek fan if you be- if you believe in anything supernatural. If you're not an atheist, you can't be a real Star Trek fan because they right. like to like bludgeon people with with that quote, which I get. And I mean, it, it does say something pretty explicit about at least Picard's worldview. Uh, which mm-hmm. which may or may not be the worldview of like the Federation writ large. I feel like it's probably the majority view, if not the like most widespread. Um, but just the the yeah. idea that like we're not gonna like we're gonna solve this problem by like honesty, communication, compassion, and with uh, 
human or person-centered solutions to this problem. We're not going to lean into the idea of, sure, they think I'm a god, so I'm going to you know, give them commandments so I can get my people back or whatever like they're the mm-hmm. there's a higher there's a higher thing than just this person's life or my individual life yeah and and the reason that like i, I thought we should do humanism is because you know insofar as i think this is a humanist show and sometimes a little bit i think leans into the like uh edgelordy almost version of humanism oh yeah in the portrayal of godlike entities in particular i think there's a, a a theme throughout star trek that's like gods are really just very powerful people usually who are douches right you know like they're usually not good people in right. this kind of way and it is very much i think a kind of humanist shrinking of a god down to you know naturalist sizes essentially yeah absolutely it- in fact, I can off the top of my head, I can only think of one notable exception to that rule in mm-hmm. um, I forget the name of the episode, but uh, the fire. The, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Pack your bags. Nerd card. <laughs> hand it in. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a, a TNG episode that's uh, again has a subplot involving counselor troy being mind raped which is not great sure uh but you know they they come upon this planet that's been devastated and there's this old couple that is unexplainably alive and the basically Mm -hmm. this godlike being who has given up his godlike existence to like settle down and get married to this woman Um, classic but of course as as soon as he is deeply wounded, he immediately turns back to those powers and wipes out the entire race of people who committed the atrocity. Sure. Um, and so again, like still gets there uh, in that awful things are done by this entity. Uh, but I will say that mm-hmm. he is better than a lot of uh, portrayals because he at least feels bad about it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, you were mentioning earlier the kind of portrayal of human nature. I think, you know, there's there's the sort of, they just think that humans are innately evil kind of vibe, but there right. could also just be another version of this, which is like similar to the, the Ring of Gaiji's thought experiment, which is the like, your invisibility ring, your standard, you know, you're no mm-hmm. longer going to take you know, consequences for your actions kind of situation. Um, And the idea would just be that like human beings are ethical when they are in the right kind of social communion with others. And if they are removed from that because they are put in this godlike position or something, then they, you know, no longer acts potentially ethically. Um, I really liked actually the one good line, I think from the original version of this uh, show was the, um, gods need compassion above all else because the god is kind of as the god character is becoming more godlike they're because they're losing their compassion um, and it reminded me actually a little bit of the we, we uh, talked a while back about Nick Bostrom who you know whatever you think about Nick Bostrom one thing he puts forward about super intelligent AI is that they might not be super ethical that like being more powerful or smarter doesn't necessarily make you better like right. being moral is a whole separate um, dimension but we haven't actually defined humanism yet so i wanted to oh, I'll spend yeah. a little time here on that, <laughs> we probably do that um yeah. <laughs> i know we've been sort of talking around it but you know give me the opportunity to take is, start to talk about star trek and it just i know you just start you start rattling every off other part it's of great. my brain turns off i apologize <laughs> it's all right it's okay we'll we'll get you we'll get you focused in here um humanism is a term that 
reads to me almost like speciesistic in, a, in the way it sounds, but the meaning is what you were describing, which is that it's like human-centered approaches to human problems, improving people's quality of life, uh, general, you know, like if you think about the kind of broadly liberal, progressive kind of mindset that's sort of essentially humanism. Um, and I wanted to say a little bit about the history of it. A lot of times when you hear people describe the history of humanism, it's always coached in like the Western history of humanism. Mm -hmm. So you get Socrates and the Enlightenment and modernity. Congrats. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there were a bunch of different humanists. There are actually humanists in, in India who like precede Socrates by several hundred years at least who arise in the Hindu tradition. But essentially, you know, there's a bunch of different schools of Hinduism. And one of them, um, and I, I'm always going to mispronounce any words, but especially Indian words, um, Kavaka is, I think, how it's pronounced, is basically a humanist atheist tradition within Hinduism. It essentially says there is no gods. There are no independent selves. They they do, you know, like very similar things to the kind of like what the Buddhists end up doing. Um, and you also have folks like Shuangzi in um, China who are making very similar humanist arguments about the limits of our knowledge, you know, about our uncertainty, about our own selves and what we should do as people as a result of those sort of things. And what ties all of this together is this basic principle of empiricism over mysticism and kind of pluralism over dogmatism, right? Having more options, more plurality, more different ways that people can live um, their lives. And it is fair to say, I think that this view has really shaped the modern world. This is kind of what we think of when we think, quote unquote, about uh, modernity. Um, so I wanted to talk to some of the like principles of humanism a little bit. What are the like main tenets? Um, and there's a list of them. They're called the Ten Commitments is uh, one that a lot of people use. And I'll just list them here. It's critical thinking, ethical development, peace and social justice, which might are, might be in conflict sometimes, uh, <laughs> yeah. service and participation, altruism, humility, environmentalism, global awareness, responsibility, and empathy. And I think it's fair to say we could go through that list and you could probably list 10 Star Trek episodes for each of them that like embodies <laughs> oh, <can> that <laughs> one particular principle yeah. of humanism, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and I, I will say that, you know, Gene Roddenberry very explicitly defined himself as a humanist uh, and, mm -hmm. and like publicly identified himself that way. And so that's not something that necessarily has to be read into. I think there could be lots and lots of conversation over, uh, you know, to what degree he lived up to those ideals because the truth is he often did sure. not. But in terms of <laughs> at least his aspirations or his values as he expressed them, uh, you know, that at least in theory is what he was trying to portray in Star Trek. And so that that's why you get the 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 science focused sort of problem solving thing that is uh, it, it's very much like we have to science this out or we have to therapy mm -hmm. this out. And right. I think that's I mean, that ends up being all of the best moments of Star Trek, at least for me. Are, are where those kinds of things happen, where people come together to like really think through a problem, find a, a, an interesting solution to a problem that involves, mm -hmm. uh, th that actually involves not even necessarily compromise, but like 
everybody ending up okay learning how to communicate, mm-hmm. learning how to balance people's different and sometimes competing needs. Like I think Star Trek is at its best when it does that sort of thing. And I think it very, very much does not get it right all of the time. But I think mm-hmm. at its best, it gets it. And also I think some some of when Star Trek is at its best is when these ideas are challenged in a very real way. Right. Uh, because, you know, throughout... TOS and TNG specifically, there are not a lot of times where they meet existential threats to these things, to their, like, to the utopia that it, uh, the ostensible utopia that exists within the Federation and Starfleet, because you're largely dealing with a group of people who have these shared ideals. And anyone else you meet is an outlier who does not have the power to overcome what you have collectively as a group as the federation as starfleet even as a like a starfleet crew versus the crew of another ship but ds9 for Mm -hmm. example is so much about what happens when you have to deal with the fact that the rest of the galaxy doesn't live that way and that's you know one of the best monologues in all of star trek is captain cisco you know what the problem is the problem is earth out here (laughs) on the frontier all these problems haven't been solved yet you know and he he like goes through the whole thing and it's uh the the like the money shot line is it's easy to be a saint in paradise and Mm. i think that is the the parts of tng that start to feel sometimes a little formulaic and boring i think kind of lay that out like it's really easy to be a saint in paradise because you're making decisions that you know the the stakes are as high as your ship uh, which is mm-hmm. not to say that doesn't matter, but like if you lose, you know that the world that you exist in is not under meaningful threat, really. Uh, in the yeah. grand scheme of things, a thousand people dying in the Federation is obviously a tragedy, but it's not right. going to substantively change the way things work. Right. That's why that's why I think it is kind of like humanism porn in right. the sense that like the stakes are kept generally fairly low so that we can yeah. play around with our principles. Um, and I do think a lot of times when you see things go badly, it's an interesting it has to do with like the relationship between the kind of empathy, compassion side and the critical thinking side, which don't have to actually be in conflict, but sometimes are potentially. Right. Um, and often I think what we what we see are you know, critiques of approaches that lean too far in one direction or Mm -hmm. the other, right? So you have a lot of, you know, critiques of the hyper-rationalist, but also the hyper-emotional, but also, like, they're both needed for a variety of, like, solving of problems over the course um, of the show. And, yeah, and I think... I agree with you that like I like it when they challenge the humanism stuff. I think it's good to reinforce it, um, but it's also good to potentially be critical of it, like the rationalism part, like you know making fun of the way that it is not necessarily the best towards religious individuals, not super respectful in various cases, um, but also like challenging the the like peace side of peace and social justice. Mm-hmm. Like this episode, for example, right? The solution to God is a boulder, right? You just yep. you have to hit it with you a boulder, drop a rock on his head. Yeah, and well, I think his body, not his head. Yeah, yeah, and, and like humanism, I think has a a difficulty with justified violence. I think you mm-hmm. know that like some some humanists get squeamish about the kind of idea of whether it's revolutionary violence or or whatever it is that like you know there's this kind of naivete, and you see it in some of the Star Trek captains where it's like, no, I can just talk my way out of this. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's just like, it's just not always the case. Which is why, um, like, hot take, if Captain Picard was in command of Voyager, I don't think they would have made, made it back from the Delta Quadrant. Yeah, or if he was in charge of, like, DS9, like, where does that go? It would go poorly. Well, I think... I think he might have made it through DS9 because Picard knows how to turn on the like, all right, we're going to fight and you're going to regret it. Uh, Because I'm thinking in particular of the uh, (laughs) the episode Mm -hmm. where he's in the the Klingon Great Hall and like, you'll have to fight something they don't teach you in Starfleet. And he's like, you may test that assumption at your convenience. And it's just like so coldly (laughs) just super badass, right? Uh, So I, I think when it involves fighting i think he does fine i think it's when it involves like there are some times where your survival ends up taking precedence over your morality and Mm -hmm. i don't know that i don't know that picard would make those decisions like uh like like cisco does to bring the romulans into the dominion war for example um right so yeah go ahead no, I was so yeah, um, yeah, you're good. Okay. Uh, yeah, the other thing I just wanted to mention, I know we're getting short on time here, the humanist idea of human nature, right? Since you mentioned you brought up like what is human nature? Does humanism have like a specific view? And I would I would argue that there's actually a bunch of disagreement within humanism mm-hmm. about what is human nature. There are definitely, you know, your Hobbesians who you think, you know, think that like humans need to have these kind of rules because otherwise they will act immorally. Um, And like partly they'll think that that's because they're purely evil or just selfish or something like that. Um, But I think there's a pretty substantial strain of humanism that does have this idea that like, if you take a person and you put them in the wrong kind of circumstances, they might turn into a monster. But in most normal circumstances, they are default good people. They are default altruistic and pro-social and compassionate and that you have to kind of break them in some way or, you know, break the circumstances in some way in order to, you know, and and like if you want to say, oh, well, that just proves who they really are in those circumstances. This comes back to the question of like, who's the real person, Mm -hmm. right? Is it the person that they are in their normal everyday circumstances or the ones they are in crisis? Some people, I think, love the idea that like the true you is the one that comes out in crisis. But I think sometimes the thing that comes out in crisis is just a really broken version of you. Oh, for sure. And I think like I don't think there's a universal answer to that because I think I don't know that this is like a majority thing or even a significant number thing. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, I had a a friend who was a Marine and uh, I lived in Jacksonville, North Carolina with him for a little bit and worked at Best Buy. And so like, I just met tons of people who are in the Marine Corps and I heard people say directly or secondhand that like, they actually thrive in those sorts of like high energy, high stakes things where it's, you know, you're like firing back and forth and there's conflict and the stakes are life and death and that kind of stuff. And they don't know how to cope with like, I'm at home, I'm going to work, mm-hmm. I'm coming home, maybe watching football at, at night, whatever. The, and like the people who don't actually know how to cope with that side of things and thrive under chaos and stress, you know, and I just, I think we are all so traumatized by the culture we grow up in. I don't even know that at this point it is possible to come up with a meaningful answer to that question because Mm. so much of what we, so much of the way that we view things is colored by the lens of the culture that we grew up in. And that is just so 
constant and unending. It's just like it's it's the water that is impossible to not swim in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do agree. I think if I had to like put my money down on the ta- Dabo table here anywhere on like what human nature actually quote unquote is, you know, based on my understanding of evolution and things like that, I would say that we are, you know, slightly lean good in the sense that we are pro-social creatures. We are hard. It seems that we are pretty hardwired for things like fairness. Um, you know, we do have an in-group out-group bias problem that I think compromises us morally on a variety of fronts, but I think overall we are harm averse and compassionate um, because those are adaptive advantages for pro-social creatures. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean we can't, you know, be habituated to be the opposite. Absolutely not. But like, I think that is, that is where we cluster as a species in that sense. Yeah, I agree. And if you look at the periods of time, like what we know about what you know culturally we've sort of dismissed as prehistory which i think is i mean i think there's just a whole lot in the fact that we've just dismissed all of the time before what we would recognize as civilization like we've just dismissed that as prehistory as if that's something like less worthy of consideration less worthy of looking at i i absolutely positively do not mean to idealize these groups of people but i think it's fair to say that like for the majority of human history the default has been for humans to to get together in social groups and to act in ways that support the communal well-being at least w- what you view as your community your in group uh and and that mm-hmm. i think that instinct has been with humanity like evolutionarily for so long that I think it's it's, it's still baked into us now and that's I, I think at least some of the explanation for the I, I hate that people call it tribalism uh, because sure. I because I, I think there's there's a whole lot there in uh, in, in xenophobia. <laughs> Call, sure, a like lot of indi- like, is, yeah, it's, is tri- it's an indigenous yeah. yeah indigenous culture problem for sure. Yeah, um, but and, that and, does yeah, seem I, to oh, be you know. the only near universal human instinct is the 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 communal instinct, the idea to form social groups that provide like support and affirmation to the members of their community. And I, I would say if mm. if there is a universal or near universal thing about humanity. I think that's probably the only thing that I would feel comfortable saying like, yeah, that's a thing. Mm, That's a good teaser for our next upcoming topic. Mm -hmm. I will will add also um, one of my favorite books about human nature, The Secret of Our Success, is a really great piece about... The, the what makes humans special, quote unquote, a, you know, a couple of features that come together that make us lucky enough to bootstrap our way up to getting to do podcasts. Uh, <laughs> but one of them is that we're hyper mimics. We're really, 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 really good at learning by observation of other people's behavior and mimicking that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a form of social learning. And we are really primarily social learning creatures. It seems like in that way. Um, and I think. You know, for a social learning creature like that, being pro-social is going to be kind of a default, a a slight default, even though they also find that, like, if your models are vicious people, you will become vicious. Like, you'll learn that is the right behavior. Yeah. And and it's interesting 
trying to dig into what seem to be exceptions to that. People who mm-hmm. kind of have the decks stacked towards them going that way, but somehow still find their way out of it and turn out to be mm-hmm. like advocates of the opposite. And like, what is there? What is there in that? What of that can we use to help uh, de-radicalize people? You know, out of you know evangelical, uh, you know, oppressive like evangelical religion of of one kind right. or another, or um, in any number of like. I'm going to murder you because you're different and I don't like you kind of, uh, kind of places. Yeah. That's how we talk about luck, but no, I, <laughs> I, I joke we're at the end of the show. I'm not opening that right now. Um, <laughs> but no, we are, we are way over time, but this has been a lot of fun. I'm really glad to get to, like, to get you introduced to the audience more. And I feel like this has been a good start for some retweaking of things. Yeah. Very glad to have, uh, you know, taken the, the first step in my journey to just making this a Star Trek podcast secret. If you're listening, don't tell, don't tell it. The Trekkening should have been the, um... yeah. no, the Trekkening. Oh my God. That's it. That's gotta be the season two subtitle. That's all we got. All Trek all the time. Uh, uh no, it is not gonna be all Trek all the time. I promise y'all we will be keeping that classic tentacle flavor too. Mm, it is going to be good tentacle and transporters yeah very excited um, about that yeah in, in, in all in all seriousness i love talking about star trek and we've done trek mostly because it's like my wheelhouse and the thing that uh i'm gonna get the most like soapboxy and yelling about but i'm actually really really interested to dive into a lot of other things and this was like a very long conversation that i had with aaron at the beginning so it was like conceptually I'm familiar with a lot of this stuff, but I'm not super well read and educated on philosophy subjects. And so I am genuinely like curious and eager to like dive into and learn about all this stuff and, uh, you know, be traumatized by all of the body horror and all of that fun stuff. Like I knew what I was getting into. It's fine. Right. I've got a lot of weirdness to teach you about certainly. And then also I, I think we have a fun idea where we're gonna, you know, catch you up on some of the like intro to philosophy stuff that we covered way back when, but like we got lots of, you know, new listeners now. So we're going to, and we're going to do that, you know, via Trek because luckily Trek has literally every philosophy thing you could ever care about. There's an episode for it and you know, all of them. So (laughs) uh, we will translate everything into your language so that the upload is a little bit faster there. Um, But no, in the meantime, we have other content to cover, I suppose. We do. We do. Uh, We're very excited. So do you want to talk about what our, uh, what our next episode is going to be? Yeah. And we know that we're overdue for a Q and a, but we figured it made sense to get a few episodes with you on so that people can get to know you a little bit and what kind of questions they would like to ask you. Uh, So before we do that, we are going to cover the most important star-related thing that isn't Trek, which is Andor, the the new Star Wars show that all of your friends are telling you you should watch because you absolutely should be watching it. Um, it is incredibly it's it's the most important Star Wars. Like I just I'm just gonna come right out and 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 just put that marker down right now. It's the best Star Wars and has the best messages, and I'll fight anybody about it. Um, so we're gonna do now. I get to rant. We're yeah, let's do, do it. Go for it. I think. <laughs> Two episodes on this, probably. I think the way it was going to work is we're going to do the first six episodes of the season and we'll talk about, um, you know, colonial erasure of indigenous cultures and fun things like that. Um, And then we will talk about the second half and I won't give away what we're going to talk about there. But I promise that you're going to be really, really excited for it. Um, It's 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 an incredible show. Like, 
get your tissues, buckle up. It's, you know, I, I will say, I said this to you, right? Like the first episode, you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of like a intriguey people survive in, you know, the Star Wars universe kind of vibe. And by the end, you're just like, burn it all down. Right, right. <laughs> So, yeah, well, it's gonna be great. as of now, I'm only two episodes in, and I actually am super into it. I, I, a lot of complaints, nice. like nothing happens, and I don't know. I'm at a point in my life where I appreciate shows where very little happens, <laughs> as long as like the characters are interesting and there's like a somewhat cool story. Like I'm just willing to go on that journey, so I'm I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, and so I guess as a uh, as a bit of uh, we'll just call it hazing, uh, Aaron mm-hmm. threatened me into reading the names, and I. <laughs> Just yeah. super didn't want we're, to we're trade it off now. Yeah. <laughs> this is your job now. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah. All the captains do this. It's totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Uh, so thanks to our strong AI patrons collecting samples for a non-consensual spoken word album. Big easy blasphemy. <laughs> Dude. Corey Ebert. Jesta. That bastard Neil Polzin. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Alex Arnett, and thanks to our definitely not a clone, we scared Thomas away with terrible movies. And mm. selfishly, like I'm glad you did. I'm kidding. No, <laughs> he will be missed, but his be. new incarnation be. also, you know, also good Dax. Um, yes, and that that spoken word I think is a reference to our most recent NASA, which was so much fun, and people should absolutely check that out. Speaking of us nerding out about Trekkie things, oh. it is very, very after darky, naked time, mm-hmm. fun times, good so stuff. good, so good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, speaking of, I guess we should also make our way towards After Dark, or as we would say in this show, maybe we can head over with the girls from Cetacean Ops for a little bit of swim action. Yeah, this thing's waterproof. I can swim all night. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for listening, and so excited to have Callie here. And yeah, come join us. Come listen to After Dark. Come hear the bonus content. Come be a part of this ridiculous journey. And if not, we'll see you next time. This has been a burst transmission of Philosophers in Space. All music written and performed by Thomas Smith. If you've enjoyed your infotainment upload, please locate the nearest podcast interface device and fill it with five-star ratings and glowing reviews. If you think Ground Control should spring for fun new goodies and content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash zero G. You can find us on Twitter at Zero G Philosophy, where Aaron will instantly and compulsively respond. Or you can email us at philosophersinspace at gmail.com. Finally, if you're sad that it takes so long for our signals to reach Earth, you can always find Thomas over at Serious Inquiries Only and Opening Arguments, and Aaron over at Embrace the Void. Until next time, live long and philosopher. I'm the captain now. Look at me.